there's about 6,000 independent vertical farming companies and only a handful of them are listed on stock exchanges around the world. However, this sector has grown from being worth about $3 billion a couple of years ago to depending on the estimates that you read, and there's a couple of wild estimates out there. One company says that it's going to be worth about $25 billion by 2026. Another company by the name of Pitchbook, who manages venture capital um, going into new projects, by the way, says that vertical farming as a global sector could be worth $155 billion by 2026. Hi, Shay Russell here from Exponential Investor and welcome back to your weekly podcast. Now, I am your solo host this week. Sam Volkering, unfortunately, cannot join us. However, that means I get to talk about my love of all thing commodities. Although, I'll be honest, I am disappointed Sam isn't here for today's chat because it combines Today's chat is going to combine both of our loves, and that is his love of technology and my love of commodities. Now, before we get started, I do want to just touch on something that I covered last week. Uh, and last week, I talked about how I attended a conference in Australia, uh, and a lot, there were two key themes uh, in the conference. One was critical min- minerals, uh, how desperately they're needed for net zero, and how are we going to fund these net zero goals that governments have? That's really sort of one key theme with three levels. Uh, but the other theme that I noticed, and this was sort of persistent through everybody's stalls is anybody who had brought um you know machinery basically it was just advertising how far machinery had come in the mining sector and how mines are moving to become autonomous spaces and basically reducing the human element and that leans into what we're going to today but before we get to today for anybody who is investing in commodity stocks always keep technology in the back of your mind basically you want to see extraction companies investing heavily in artificial intelligence uh, intelligence, augmented reality, and automa- um, automation processes. And the reason is is uh, ex- uh, we're going deeper than ever before. Labor costs are through the roof, and especially with inflation uh, raging through, not just in the UK, but in all pockets of the world, it's really important that mining companies look to streamline their costs and maximize the efficiencies that come with technologies. Now, obviously, this is a big subject, and I'll delve into this uh, a little bit more in a couple of other episodes about uh, what you know? What are the key things to look for? But I do want to morph onto the second part of today's conversation. I'll be honest, there's probably no real neat segue into it other than it is taking the best of both worlds. Now, today's topic, we're not talking about hard commodities like copper or gold or even oil or gas. We're going to be talking about soft commodities, and that is the agriculture sector. Now, um, a lot of people think of agriculture as sort of very much a, a sector that's stuck in its ways. You don't think of it as innovative and pushing forward. And when you do think of the agriculture sector as innovative, there's going to be some creative ways I'm saying that word apparently today. Um, you know, we think of uh, autonomous um how have I forgotten the word? Okay, COVID fog. Good, good, good. Lots of fun. Um, we think of autonomous bulldozers. We think of autonomous tractors. That's it. Tractors are what work at farms. We think of autonomous plows. Um, what we don't think about are the smart sensors that are being placed into the ground to tell farmers how much rainfall uh, rain fall there has been, I don't think I can blame that word trip on COVID, uh, how moist the soil is how this and how the seasons are evolving. So they're sort of, you know, we, we automatically just picture a, a robo tractor moving along, but we don't picture some of the smaller parts of the supply chain. Well, 
this is all part, all these, um, all this automation process being brought, brought to uh, the agriculture sector is actually part of a subsector that's been birthed called agritech. And some are pe uh, some people are calling agritech the fourth agricultural re re revolution. It, it, you know, given how I'm tripping over my words, it sounds like today is going to be a really long podcast. Buckle in, everybody. Right, so agriculture, for those who love the history, has actually been through four revolutions. So the first one was about 12,000 years ago when we basically, people established organised farming. The second agricultural revolution was at the end of the 17th century, around the time feudalism in Europe was ending and the redistribution of land was happening among uh, people. Uh, and basically, we, we started looking at commercial ways to access and farm the land. Now, the third one is often called the Green Revolution. Now, the Green Revolution goes back to the 1940s when seeds were essentially engineered for mass production. So what could be, you know, how much, how could they increase yield, a uh, crop yield in order to feed an expanding population? Now, during the 1940s and 50s and 60s, which is also what uh, fed into the baby boom, there's a whole little actual side story I could go down here about how refrigeration is the reason why so many of us are taller today than previous generations, but I might save that tidbit for another day. Um, but this, is a, this was a really exciting time in agriculture because it's also the first time we see chemical fertilizers um, being introduced into the into agriculture at the same time to ensure bigger crop yields and this is basically what our food system today is that we rely on all of the practices that were established back in the 1940s and the 1950s this is how we're fed especially in western countries like I, I will make that caveat actually in western countries we rely on the work that was done in the 1940s and that's why we get to live the lifestyle and the nutrient dense food that we get to eat today but agritech is seen as the fourth re revolution of agriculture, and there's a couple of reasons why. Now, first of all, climate change is basically leading to unstable growing patterns. And the problem with climate change and people isn't that the people won't adapt. Uh, as a species, we will adapt to climate change. We're a very clever species and we will work out how to build smarter buildings and better transport systems. We will do all these things and we will move with climate change. We can do that. The problem when it comes to climate change is the rapid destruction that it will wreak on our current agricultural system, which, as I just explained, is actually what feeds the world. That's where the real problem is. As a species, we will adapt. The problem is our food chain, our food supply system can't adapt as quickly as um, as climate change will erode what we've got. Now, just to put this into a little bit of perspective, only 36% of the world's available land mass is used for agriculture. And of that, only one third is used for growing crops. The other two thirds of the available land is actually used for livestock and basically growing the grass to feed livestock. So uh, I think it works out to be 12% of our total land mass is essentially what feeds 8 billion people. It's not a lot. Uh, it's not a lot of landmass. And obviously, too, it's grown in certain regions for certain reasons. You know, we've got the moist soil in the UK, which is great for dark-rooted vegetables, but it's not good for things like growing rice, which is what India's rice pad is uh, so well suited for. And climate change is moving at such a rapid pace that uh, scientists aren't entirely sure that our current food systems that we've got are going to be sustainable 10 or 20 years from now. That's how soon it is going to impact our food supply chains. Um, 
and an addendum to this that is important to note is a lot of our food system now relies on weather patterns from 500 years ago. So um, a lot of, you know, how we expect our climate to operate, how we expect to grow our food and how we've adapted our food to this is based on something half a millennia old, and that is rapidly changing. Now, further to this as well, and this is where it, and this is why what I'm about to talk about is so important, uh, is it takes about, and again, on the half a century thing, it takes about 500 years for 2.5 centimetres of topsoil to develop, for the depositional environment to change. So that the depositional environment is basically where wind and water move cranes and they place them in a new place. So it can take 500 years for an inch, that much, for the topsoil to be planted. Um, to be reshifted, and that's what we're relying on. Now, the problem is, as uh, people, you know, especially since mass ag agriculture has been introduced or global agriculture has been introduced, I'm not sure what word we're going to go with today. Um, it's been a we've eroded 40% of our arable land, or sorry, our available soil for agriculture in 30 years. Actually, I think I worked out it was since John Lennon died. I've written it down somewhere, so it wasn't 30 years; it was 40 years. We've eroded 40% of our growing soil, our soil available to grow our food since John Lennon was shot, which isn't a lot, which is far too quick based on how long it takes for this soil to be placed in these areas. Now, this is alarming for scientists because it does mean that if we would still like to eat nutrient dense food, we need to re look at how we're growing this food. And this is what brings me to the agritech part of agriculture, and this is uh, something called vertical farming. Now, vertical farming uh, in the past couple of years, you know, it's sort of been dismissed as lettuce for rich people. And I understand why it has ended up with that tag because for a long time there, it could only grow fancy lettuce. It could grow your cos lettuce or your baby spinach leaves or your rocket. Now, uh, I'm not much of a cook, so they're sort of the only other fancy types of lettuce I can name. But it was also, you know, good for growing herbs. And that was really it. Um, in recent years, in the last couple of years, there's been enormous advances in this space. Uh, and now vertical farmers around the world look at growing tomatoes and berries and eggplants and mushrooms. Uh, and what else have I written down? Um, stone fruits. And, you know, we're hoping that they'll be able to do, grow other things like oranges and lemons. I'm just going to let you know, I'm not actually sure if that's a stone fruit or what fruit category it falls into. If anybody actually knows, feel free to write and then tell me. Oh, I might have been caught with my pants down on this one. So what, I, um, what vertical farming is looking into now is how it can grow nutrient-dense food. And the reason is, there's two reasons for it, is that um, a lot of food comes from not where it's grown. So, for example, in the UK, the majority of your fruits and vegetables that you buy in the UK actually haven't been grown there. They've come from other parts of Europe. And we could do this because it was basically taking advantage of their ideal growing conditions, uh, as well as to, you know, supply chains. We had friendly nations that were more than happy to take part in bilateral trade. So we were unable to benefit from this. But obviously, one of the downsides of this is the food that we eat has been engineered for longevity, but not taste. This is why if you grow food in your backyard, it tastes so much better than anything you'll ever buy at the supermarket because everything that you buy at the supermarket has been engineered to make sure that it can survive transport, can survive cold storage, and it can still survive 
sitting on that shelf when it gets to your supermarket. Now, vertical farming overcomes a lot of this. It overcomes uh, need relying on a global network to basically feed ourselves, as well as it means that, um, that means that vertical farmers, we are calling them that even though they're essentially scientists, can go back to re-engineering food for taste and freshness rather than longevity. Now, when it comes to investing in vertical farming, it's actually very hard to do, but I'm putting this on your radar right now because I think this is a really important sector and the reason, there's two reasons why I think investors should absolutely keep this one in their wing. Now, first of all, any vertical farming stocks that are floating around at the moment are behaving like tech stocks and we know tech stocks haven't done particularly well this year. It's actually been a bit of a rough year for tech stocks. Commodities have done okay, but tech stocks haven't. Anything that is in vertical farming, though, they aren't behaving like commodity stocks. They're behaving like tech stocks. However, when you go through the numbers, you start to see that venture capital and governments are heavily supporting this industry. Now, for example, where is my little note? I can't find my note, so we might just have to, yeah, okay, right. So the industry is highly fragmented at the moment. There's about 6,000 independent vertical farming companies and only a handful of them are listed on stock exchanges around the world. However, this sector has grown from being worth about $3 billion a couple of years ago to depending on the estimates that you read, and there's a couple of wild estimates out there. One company says that it's going to be worth about $25 billion by 2026. Another company by the name of Pitchbook, who manages venture capital um, going into new projects, by the way, says that vertical farming as a global sector could be worth $155 billion by 2026. Now, this is in US dollars. So it does tell you that nobody actually knows how much it's going to be worth yet. But if you look at the amount of money flowing into the sector, you can see that essentially uh, rich people are backing it. And when I say rich people, I probably shouldn't be so dismissive like that. But what I mean, when I refer to, refer to that, I'm essentially talking about people who have a wide range of access to experts that often people like you don't. So venture capital, uh, Pitchbook, we'll, we'll use a Pitchbook example. Pitchbook has seen um, from $10 million, so from $100 million in 2013 annually being invested into vertical farming projects to over $10 billion last year. And they're expecting, even with the troubled year that we've had this year, they're still expecting that amount, if not a little bit more, to move into vertical farming. So there's phenomenal, phenomenal amounts of new money coming in to this sector. But more to the point, it's actually getting, um, starting to get government support now. Uh, for example, there's parts of the US and Canada that are investing in investigating the opportunities of vertical farming. Uh, there is legislation in the US that has basically enabled vertical farmers to put their hands up for grants to continue to fund their work. Uh, the UK government has their own provision in some of their recent legislation. The name of it's just completely left me right now. Um, Dubai, the government of Dubai has invested heavily in creating one of the one of the largest vertical farms in the country. The Chinese government is doing the same thing. So governments are starting to understand the importance of having these distributed and fragmented supply chains around the world. And they're taking measures to make sure that they can feed people. Now, following on from that, there's private corporations. So, you know, this is sort of the double dose, and this is how I know there's good things ahead for this industry. Uh, private corporations are also starting to spend big money on this. We've got uh, Walmart. Earlier in the year, they invested up $400 million dollars 400 US million dollars into a privately listed vertical farming company. 
and I believe there is a UK, again, can't find the name of the company for the life of me, right? Oh, Gresham House. Uh, Gresham House has said that they are going to um, increase their investment in vertical farming fivefold over the next five years. So when you start hearing uh, governments and private cap uh, venture capital and private equity firms telling you they're going to invest heavily into a sector, it basically gives you a clue that there is uh, a new sector about to boom because essentially these people are the ones taking the most amount of risk with the early stage seed capital uh, and they're hoping for big returns. But also too, I don't think it's just that it's big returns. It is essentially uh, investing in a hedge against climate change. Now, granted, vertical farming is never going to be anything good for your, uh, low value calorie dense crops like the potatoes or rice, you're not going to be able to grow them in the, in the framework of vertical farming. It's just not going to work. But it is good to ensure a nutrient-rich food supply nearby where the food is actually going to be consumed. More importantly, it ticks all the right boxes when it comes to um, reducing water consumption. Uh, we haven't quite touched on the dangers of future, future water, water consumption. I might save that for a podcast couple of a couple of weeks from now but embracing vertical farming means that water is actually recycled continuously through the systems and it reduces uh water in vertical farming reduces water usage uh by 90 percent in vertical farming and again because of the controlled environment it also sees yield uh crop yield increase by 30 percent so these are really important factors to consider and you can understand when you've got those numbers in front of you why uh, governments and private uh, equity firms are so keen to invest in this because it is all about rehoming supply chains, our food supply chains, but also ensuring access to nutrient-dense food. Uh, I have blabbered on long enough about vertical farming, but it is a sector that very much excites me. Uh, if you want to know more about it, I have written about it this week in Exponential Investor. I wrote about Tuesday and I wrote about Thursday. I'll find the links and pop them in the email that this uh, podcast came in. All right. Thank you very much for indulging me on one of my uh, exciting, what I believe is an exciting topic, is what all us commodity nerds say. Uh, happening in the space. Now, hopefully next week, Sam will be able to join us. But in the absence of Sam, let's quote him. Thanks for watching and bye for now.